You're listening to IEPs and more with Kathy Greco. Answering your questions and talking to parents and professionals in the field of care and education of kids and young adults. In today's program, Kathy speaks with Kim Rubenstein. Kim discusses her journey as a new mom that was frustrated by the lack of inclusive education to her becoming a special education teacher herself, bringing the necessary training to her local school district and beyond. Kim also catches us up with her latest venture, turning a lockdown pastime into a full-fledged business. I met Kim in 2007 or 8 when I was retained to represent a student in fourth grade in a small, full-inclusion district. My client was an autistic student with very limited verbal expression. For many years, the student utilized rapid prompting method with a letter board as their communication methodology. Though they had been provided non-public agency behavioral support, which included a one-to-one behaviorist and Kim, who supervised the program, as well as accommodated the curriculum to support the student's full inclusion, the district did not want to write this service into the IEP, but rather had provided this program via settlement agreement for a few years. When a service is written into an IEP, the student then has stay-put rights, which means the student is entitled to the last agreed-upon implemented IEP pending resolution of any dispute, which could go on for years. Though districts are obligated to include all services necessary for a free and appropriate public education, FAPE in an IEP, many times districts do not want to be obligated for the cost of stay-put services. Therefore, they refuse to offer them and put parents in a position of having to fight year after year for what the student requires. This can be very anxiety-producing. Kim ran this student's program beautifully. It was a true art form. By 2009, parents were fed up with having to fight for their child to have educational access year after year. In 2009, when the district tried to remove the program, parents filed due process and a trial was held. Kim explained to the judge exactly how this program was necessary to support this student. We were successful, and thereafter, the student had stay-put rights to this program for the remainder of their education. The school district filed an appeal in federal district court wherein the original decision was upheld. If you would like to see or read this decision, it is posted at grecoadvocacy.com. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your background and how you got into serving kids with needs. You want me to go way back? I mean, I feel like I'm a dinosaur at this point. Well, I started my college career at Washington State University in 1973, and I wanted to major in special education, believe it or not. 
And when I got to school and I went to meet my counselor there, they said, well, we don't offer special education at this school. <laughs> so it was kind of like I was running away from home to go to college. And I really didn't care when I was 18 exactly what I did. But it was in my mind to become a special education teacher. Um, I stayed four years at WSU, graduated with a degree in hotel and restaurant management as opposed to special education. So I went in a whole, whole different way. Um, but many years later, when I gave birth to Elizabeth, I started attending seminars about inclusive education. And how old is Elizabeth now? This is now 34. God bless. Okay, go ahead. So 34 years ago when she was born. And um, you know, you get when you, ha you have a child with a disability, you get a lot of mixed messages. You know, the, on the one hand, I think the doctor told me that day at the hospital that if I didn't want her, I didn't have to keep her. And I thought, what the heck? How how is it possible that someone would out say to a new mother because your child has a disability that you don't you would just assume that maybe she wouldn't want to keep her? And I, we were talking about human beings here. Not you know, I didn't go to the store to buy a sweater, and it was the wrong size. This was a child that I deliberately conceived. And, you know, sometimes you get what you get. And, and, and Pobody's nerfed at this point. So, <laughs> um, I was just happy to be blessed with Elizabeth. Then we met with, at that, you know, early childhood development. People came to the house, teaching her how to sit up and talking about long-term plans for Elizabeth, what I could expect from her when she was a baby. And I was like, man, does everybody come with this kind of script to do typical kids when they're born. You know, did somebody tell my mother, well, you know, she might not be good in hotel and restaurant management, but what, like, where was their crystal ball for me? And how is it that they have a crystal ball for people with developmental disabilities? So the whole thing just kind of frustrated and befuddled me. And uh, I started, I went to several, um, there was an integration consortium in Los Angeles at that time, and they were just starting to come out with information on inclusive education. And much of it was uh, written by, I think it was Marsha Frost. Um, and there were studies going on in Wisconsin. There were, there were places that were really actually actively engaged in including people with disabilities in the community and in schools. I, that, it really piqued my interest because I thought Elizabeth is going to spend, you know, the next 12 to 16 years in school. So shouldn't I know what's going on in these school districts before I, you know, move her in the door? Um, and also, so I had the I had the interest to have her fully included. And my first goal was to get her included in preschool. Well, in Simi Valley, they did not offer an integrated preschool program. So they have special day classes. And when I went to see, you know, she was two and a half years old and I went to see the classes and it was for kids with speech and language delays, but the only people in the class who were talking were the teachers. So does that mean my daughter's gonna talk like a teacher when she's done, or do I want her talking like a kid? Shouldn't she have that same, you know, child communication, those same children, you know, childlike communication skills? Isn't, it, isn't that a process too, I thought. You don't go from no speech to talking like an adult. Don't you go from babbling you're talking like a child, you go through a whole learning process to learn and adapt speech. So I was a little frustrated. And so I started um, going around to the local preschools in the area that were private, that weren't really made for, for people with disabilities. But what I had been learning through the integration consortium was that uh, special education is not a place, it's a service. 
So in my mind, that service, since she is a member of, you know, Simi Valley School District, she should be able to go to any school and receive those services. It didn't mean the services only lived at one school. Because correct around the administrators roam around and when I uh, I went to a couple of uh, neighborhood preschools and they flatly turned me down and then I ended up at Simi Covenant uh, the church and their preschool program with welcome with open arms welcomed Elizabeth into their program so I here we go I got I've got Elizabeth and now I have Christina who's just you know a couple of years behind Elizabeth as far as age goes she was my second child neurotypical if that's what you want to call her <laughs> and uh she um, to the extent any of us are neurotypical right perfect yes exactly um and so i i got her into school and then i started asking the speech and language therapist to come to the school and elizabeth wasn't talking at all at that time you know she was babbling a bit christina who was 18 months could understand her we were using a little sign language but she would say, mommy, Elizabeth wants a cookie or mommy, Elizabeth wants that toy over there. Like she seemed to be able to understand what Elizabeth was telling her when I couldn't seem to, to grasp onto all of that. But Elizabeth started calling me Kim because all the kids in preschool started calling me Kim. And then she started calling me my Kim. That's my Kim. That's my Kim. So I became my Kim to her. <laughs> and of course, the psychologists were, you know, thinking some horrible thing had been going on because she wasn't calling me mommy he was calling me my kim but that's what the kids at preschool were calling me was was kim which she is was. actually wonderful exactly right i mean that's so thrilling she's modeling typical peers good for her modeling typical peers so you know score one for inclusion right then and there and she was talking so she did that preschool, I think, until she was six years old. I think I moved her into kindergarten when she was six. And so the year before she was to go to kindergarten, I went up to Big Springs Elementary School and I spoke with the principal. And I said, you know, this is my plan. Here I, here I am. I, this is the neighborhood that we live in. I want my daughter to grow up with all of her neighborhood friends. And I have another daughter who will be coming here in a, in a year or two after Elizabeth is here. And so, and then here's the places you can get support. And I started naming California State University and Dr. June Downing. And there was Kathy Peckham Harden at the time and Sue Sears. And so he listened to me for the longest time. And I had books because I had been to the consortium and I was buying books on inclusive education. He listened and he listened and he didn't say very much. And then yeah, I told him about my dreams that Elizabeth is not going to shop at a special ed market or go to a special ed post office. She really needs to learn how to function and be in the world in which we live, not a segregated special place. When I was done with my long <laughs> discussion with him, which seemed to be one-sided and I was sure I was failing miserably, he said, Mrs. Rubenstein, he says, I really have to tell you something. He says, I have a cousin who's 50 years old and has Down syndrome. And he says, and I can't imagine what his life would be like now if you had been his mother. It was like this, you know, like he could understand, he maybe knew what his cousin had gone through. And now was hearing my vision and thinking maybe these things are realities for people with disabilities. And in particular, my, my daughter. Um, so he said, come back next year when she's ready. Of course, then he retired. So now I've got to work with a whole new principal and start all over again. But 
And that's how it goes. You're always, I was always just selling inclusive education for Elizabeth's education. I had a, I had a great principal, Lynn Friedman, who organized the classroom so that that teacher had extra volunteers when Elizabeth came to kindergarten, that they had classroom staff help. And then the district provided a, an aid to the classroom. So, I mean, I think we kind of hit the ground running there. And then at that time, California State University was doing a, they were part of the state of California, their research and development on, on inclusive education. So they were taking data over a two-year period about students who were fully included around California. Much of this information was generated and then it was applied to, the data was then applied to the theory that inclusive education could work and these are the, th the skills that are needed. Well, as a parent, I felt I was empowered to the point that I had, Elizabeth was there, I produced her and so here she comes to school and I'm you know their cheerleader 100%, but I had no, formal training on how to actually make that work in a classroom. So when that classroom door closed and I kept getting calls every day to remind me that she had Down syndrome, oh, your daughter's under the desk. <laughs> it's, it's like saying, do you know she has Down syndrome? <laughs> right. Okay. We're sending, we're sending her to the office. So they would send her to the office. Well, she loved going to the office because people came in and they talked to her and the nurse was in there and the phone was ringing and Nobody was making any demands on her. So the best way for her to go to the office was for her to crawl, crawl under her desk in the classroom. So I, it just, it seemed to me that I needed more knowledge. If I was going to advocate for this, I needed to be able to explain to teachers and others how that could be done. When the kids, uh, I started working as an aide in school and the school, the classrooms, and I was working and a preschool program at uh, the Santa Susana Elementary School that was an integrated. It was a mommy and me program and the special day class preschool. During the day, the kids were integrated. There would had a circle time that was separate where we would work on certain skills, but then back together, there was all free play between all the students. So it was kind of a, it was an experiment for CME at that time. And I thought it was a wonderful, a wonderful program that was happening and I was you know pleased to be involved in that. In fact, Sharice Bonzel, who was the teacher, is still teaching in Simi Valley. And then I went to school myself. I went when my kids got to middle school age, I went back to CSUN and I got my degree. I got my teaching credential in special education under the direction of Dr. June Downing, which was all about inclusion. And I started working with Rick Clemens at Inclusive Education and Community Partnerships because he was, uh, and still is, a strong advocate advocate for inclusion. And he had lots of skills that he was sharing with parents and teachers. And I just became part of that team. Learned, learned from the professionals at the school and then practiced and, and worked towards fine tuning my own skills as I worked with students individually in inclusive environments. And that's how I worked my way into it, through inclusion. Kim, when you would work with other students, you were an employee of IECP, is that the moniker? What was your role? I was an inclusion facilitator. So I was usually brought into schools um, to help support students with disabilities and in typical classrooms. So I would train teachers and train aides. Um, I gave many school, actually school-wide seminars for teachers. So on their staff development day, I would go in for a whole day for six hours and do an inclusive education training and talk about the difference between mainstreaming and inclusion and 
uh, having them go through and modify curriculum. What would this look like for someone with this IEP goal? Help them to get the a vision for what it might look like in their own classrooms. What's inclusion going to look like for me? And it's going to look different every time because every student that's fully included is different. Just like every student that you bring to the class is different every time. And when you would go do these trainings, were you met with opposition or were people pretty generally open to it? People, the, the teachers that I worked with during those uh, seminars were very much open to uh, learning. They're learners too. And uh, were these general ed or special ed teachers or both? Gen general education teachers and there were some special education teachers that were in there. And I think they were looking for tools for their toolbox. Their tool had been, let the aid take care of it. And now I was actually giving them instructional tools and working with people with developmental disabilities. And it might be behavioral tools. It could be instructional tools. It could be classroom design. How do I give one student a break when I've got everybody else not taking a break? How do, how do these things work? And just talking through some of those frustrations and, and concerns that those teachers faced. I think where I ran into, I don't want to say opposition, but pushback were from teachers that were very set on how their classroom had worked for 20 or 25 years. And for us to come in and do something different in their classroom was just a true invasion of what they felt they had been building for a lifetime. And I, I, I get that, except that, you know, we don't grow unless we change. I, <laughs> I appreciated those, those teachers. In fact, one of the teachers at the elementary school that Elizabeth went to, she was a long tenure teacher. She refused to have people with disabilities in her classroom. After two or three years of Elizabeth being on the campus, she came up and apologized to me later saying she was misguided in her judgment of that. And she ended up having a child with a disability and she said it was the greatest experience of her life. But, you know, people have to, they change in their own process too. Correct. So you have to you have to give a little grace and a little leeway. <laughs> right, right. And I agree with you. It's been my experience that the more seasoned teachers who are set in what they do have a harder time expanding that, right? You just talked about like you would help them think of ideas for a classroom setup or for behavior or for curriculum. How did you determine what needed to be done? Um, mostly I would listen to the teachers and then I would observe in the classroom. So I would, I would listen to what the teachers had shared and then I would do classroom observation so I could observe the student myself. What is actually happening? Is there something in the way that the teacher is saying something or is there some other thing in the environment that is distracting the student from, from engaging? What, what is actually going on? And I would sit in the back of the room and just take copious notes for two or three days and then, and then start designing a plan. Generally, the students that I worked with were being served by um, aides from IECP, from Inclusive Education and Community Partnerships. So it was easy for me to do a little bit of work before I sat down with a plan to kind of see whether if I developed a strategy, is this going to be effective in this environment? Do you think we could do this here? So I could work with that, that staff member who was working with a student. I would, you know, prompt them, step back, move in. Now's the time, you know, just giving them some direction while they were in the classroom working direct one-on-one uh, -on -one with the student. 
who then delivered the instruction? Because if you're in the general ed environment, right, a teacher is delivering instruction, correct? The teacher is delivering instruction. But when after the teacher, when the teacher is delivering instruction, we had modified curriculum. So we had students that were working on the same curriculum, only modified to meet some of their goals and objectives. If they were, if they, if it was, you know, just one example, if it was reading, we might have shortened it to just a sentence or two. It might have been drawing a picture about, you know, a particular subject matter. It might be forming blocks to do addition problems rather than looking at the numbers and trying to add them up or using the dot points on the numbers. We, we just found ways to adapt the curriculum that was in the classroom without bringing in something new. I will say that for, I mean, I worked with many students with autism who people didn't think they had any skills at all. But by using adapt, adaptive technology and um, finding their voice, However, however their voice is and however they were going to communicate that knowledge to us, finding that they knew a ton. They knew a ton more that they were given than they were given credit for, but we found a way for them to express that to us in a way that was meaningful to them. When you say modified curriculum, who modified it? It was under my direction because I was the special education teacher, or if there were special education teachers that I then trained to go in and modify the curriculum and the, and the instructional assistant. So would you get the curriculum from the school in advance and take a look at it and then have for your particular student, oh, when they're doing this unit of science, this is our student's unit of science, which is the same, but modified to that particular student, correct? So it took a lot of pre-planning. If you don't do any pre-planning, then that's kind of dump and hope. We're going to dump them in here and hope that they do well. You, you really have to plan for success. And you talk about giving these students the ability to find a voice. Many of the kids you worked with were nonverbal kids, correct? Or very limited verbal kids. Uh, and some were very verbal. <laughs> and then they have behavioral issues on top of that. So... <laughs> So even the kids that were verbal, you still had to figure out a way for them to be able to express their knowledge, right? So if the curriculum is something they're uninterested in, or they really are not ready for that much, they're not going to be engaged, right? Because they don't care. But if they have something that they can actually participate in, then they have a voice of being able to tell you what they know. My goal was to try to get them interested in. So if I could be creative enough with the curriculum, let's say a science curriculum, that maybe wasn't meaningful. If we could make that science, even if it was a hands-on project related to that, what area of science we were working in, something that I knew would be engaging to that student, it was a way to make a connection. And the teachers, the the wonderful teachers that I worked with, they knew what we were doing. If we're going to plant seeds and everybody else is studying about seeds and germination and blah, 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 we're planting seeds. And then at the end, they're going to show. And this is how so and this is how this student was involved. And look at so they've already planted the seeds and now we're going to be able to watch them grow. So they would show that connection between teacher and student. And I mean, the lead teacher, the classroom teacher. And that student is so important. The secondary connection is between the instructional assistant. 
I never wanted the instructional assistants to see themselves as the lead teacher because they are not. This student needs to be able to take direction from the lead teacher and, and respect and, and listen to that lead teacher. And respond to the lead teacher. Exactly. And the uh, additional support, the behaviorist, as, as I call them, was there to support the student in the curriculum with behaviors or curriculum or whatever that student needed to actually access what was going on. Yes. But then, I mean, and here really is the tricky part from what I see that's going on out there right now. It was be much easier for the general ed teacher to be involved in this because they really didn't have to do anything, right? General ed teachers are are busy, right? They're overwhelmed. So you would provide this box of tools and curriculum so they didn't have to worry about, they could understand it, they could work with you. You would have team meetings to discuss so they knew, but it wasn't incumbent upon them to figure all these pieces out and then implement. Correct. There's a big movement now for full inclusion, you know, around the this Caneo Valley and it, some universal design for learning. And, and I, I don't know that much about it, but the name universal and inclusion to me tells me they don't really understand what inclusion looks like. Because there is no universe. Is this everybody doing their own thing? Is that what it is? So then, then we're all included at our own level. We're just in a Zoom pod together. <laughs> right. And who's doing the curriculum, right? Yeah. And every curriculum is different based on every student. And that's a hard thing for parents to understand because everybody does want full inclusion, but that if it's not done with the precision and detail that you all put into these programs, yeah, your kid could be in there, but your kid's not going to learn a heck of a lot. And if you don't care about that, that's fine. But don't expect it because who's going to actually do what needs to be done, right? It, it, it's a lot more work than I think it was theoretically meant to be. <laughs> but the reality is inclusion is, is hard work. <laughs> it's hard work, but it's the most, I, I get tears in my eyes when I think about it. When I see students that were, you know, previous teachers would say, well, they can't write their name and they can't do this. It was like a whole list of they can't, they can't, they can't. And when we found tools like assistive technology, suddenly not only were they writing their names, but they were telling us things in complete sentences that we could never get out of them because their handwriting wasn't working well but they could touch it out on a computer and, you know, tell us all sorts of things. And that was quite a long time ago I know. when <laughs> computers were really the norm. And I mean, yeah, was, no, I think the iPads were just coming out then. Um, we had letter boards that we were working with um, through Soma. Do you remember oh, Soma? Don't I know? Yes, I, I, I remember mean, the letter boards and the ripping of paper. Yeah letter boards and so they would tap out a word but they would they were tapping out words it was ha it was happening and it may have taken a while but suddenly computers came on and not only did the students see what they tapped out they could see it right in front of them in real time before they would type on a letter and you know the the aide would write it down 
And now all of a sudden they can hit the keys on the keyboard and there's the word on the screen. And also they have so many more applications now that make it more simple for communication. What would you say your biggest challenge was in, in working with these families and schools? I think there's probably a disconnect in expectations, a disconnect in what the parent wants. And so the parent is disappointed and a disconnect between what the teacher, uh, not the teacher, but maybe the school side in general was hoping to achieve and both of them falling short. Where I felt there was lots of victories. I, I saw students grow leaps and bounds in classrooms. I'm trying to think there weren't that many times, maybe, maybe one teacher really got to me because uh, I think the teacher told me that it was a waste of paper to modify curriculum for a student with a disability. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, I'm never going to jump this hurdle. I don't know how, if I can turn this lady around, I'm doing a good job. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't sure if that was going to happen. And how, how long were you with IECP? Oh, for 10 years, I think 10 years, a good 10 years. And why did you leave? I moved up north. My father had passed away and he was my mother's caregiver. And so I had to move home to take care of my mom. And what about Elizabeth? She came with me. And what did she do there? Uh, sat in a room for quite some time. Washington is kind of like uh, like moving to outer space where they don't. <laughs> They don't really offer what California offers. So if you think you have a bad in California, let me just say, move to Washington and then you'll know (laughs) you've got it really, really good. And thanks to the advocacy of parents in Southern California, I would say that that the parents that I met were staunch advocates for their kids and they were intelligent and they were willing to learn. And up here in smaller communities, people are afraid to rock the boat because they live in a small community and you're going to see that teacher at the market. When you live in a metropolitan area, you know, they could be three cities over, three towns over from you and not even live in your neighborhood. The likelihood that you're going to see the teacher at the supermarket is a whole lot different than, than um, up here than it is down there. And I agree with you that, that parents sometimes are very much afraid to rock the boat and want to play nice. And they think if they're playing nice, then the school team is going to do what's right. And I, and I think even beyond that, it's not, I think that if parents up here in Washington had more information, which is what I tried to do when I first moved up here was to connect with families. And I was working with a a child in a small community And this was a smart young man with autism. He was all over the place. He knew how to put together airplanes. And so I knew he had lots of great skills, but the school wouldn't give him the core curriculum. All I did was ask for the first grade reader and the first grade workbook so that I could modify the curriculum just to see if I could get him interested in it. And And the teacher says, well, he can't write his name. He said, you know, he used to write his name. And now he doesn't write his name anymore. And I'd say, well, you know, what instructional materials were you using? She goes, well, we use a whiteboard. And when he writes his name 10 times and we erase it and he starts all over again. (laughs) I thought, well, no wonder he doesn't want to write his name because we had Elizabeth writing her name on every single piece of paper that she got to turn into the teacher. 
that's a meaningful thing. Here's my work teacher. I get to turn in my work teacher. There's pride in that. There was pride. Here they were putting it on a whiteboard and wiping it off and letting him do it again. Like how many times did he need to write his name? He didn't need to do that. Anyway. And he was smarter not to even get started with that. Right. Like, why am I going to do it 10 times only to do it again 10 times? Exactly. It was much easier to be nagged and not do it (laughs) than to do it. (laughs) And not because he couldn't do it, but because the expectation was just keep doing it. Like sort of an ABA, give me blue, give me blue, give me blue. Right. It was frustrating. And finally, the parents said that they got to the point where I think they could see where I was going. But they said. They did tell me, we're afraid to rock the boat. We don't want to upset the school. We have a daughter that's in school here. They owned a business in the community. They were very fearful of of upsetting the school district. So that was that? That was that. And I focused focused on Elizabeth. We we finally got her a job, but I think it was almost three years working with a, with a, a placement agency here before she actually got a job. How old was Elizabeth when you moved there? moved in 2010, so 22. So she had aged out of the education process. Yes, she had. And now she's looking for some employment, employment, the community aspect. And do they have regional center type things in Washington? They have DSHS, which is the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and the DDA, the, the Developmental Disability Administration, um, and DVR, the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation. And so supposedly all these agencies work together and you do an intake through DSHS, but they refer you out to programs, which regional center in California did, did similar things. But the programs are nothing that we had compared to what we had in Simi Valley, which were pretty much day programs. Right. You you could go to the ARC and you might work three days a week at a job or or maybe a couple of jobs, have have work experience. But when you were at the center, you could be working on computer skills or they had cooking classes or, you know, they they had activities to to keep individuals engaged during the day. Here, I didn't find something for Elizabeth to do. There was nothing for her to do. So we became very reliant on Special Olympics because Special Olympics was the only activity that occurred with regularity and predictability as opposed to the the jobs. I'm still advocating, and that's why I created this business that I have currently now. Um, Elizabeth lost her job through COVID. She was working at a restaurant, washing dishes, which was not her favorite thing, but she loved talking to the people when they came into the restaurant and everybody knew her and and the people that worked at the restaurant were great to her, but she only worked there two or three hours one day a week. Okay. And the rest of the week was nothing uh, except what we did in Special Olympics. We had bowling or basketball or swimming. We were always engaged in something. And she joined the uh, Action Club, which is a division of the Kiwanis. But they meet uh, once a month. And then they have an act theater. So Action Club has a theater through the local theater group here. And so she joined that as well. So we tried to keep her engaged, but it wasn't anything that was giving her sustainable employment or income. So during COVID, she says, I am tired of sitting around doing nothing. Or she says, nothing, mother. I'm so bored. (laughs) (laughs) I I know like sitting in my room doing nothing. 
<laughs> so I said, well, what do you think about we start baking some cookies? And so we started baking and I said, well, what do you think about if we made this a business? And oh, I love that. I love, I love to sell. I love to sell, which is true. She's a great salesman. And during their fundraiser, she would go around town. She raised over a thousand dollars for Meals on Wheels on her own, going door to door in our town. <laughs> Unbeknownst to me. <laughs> she came up with checks and a bag of money. And I was like, where'd you go? She was like, oh, I go over to, and she names all the stores she went into and talked to the owners and their customers and everybody donated to me. God bless her. I know. So let's yeah. talk a little bit about the business you have now. Tell me about it. So the name of it is Good Eats Sweet Treats. And um, Elizabeth is a, we just formed an LLP. So we went after COVID, we went through the, our job coach and said, listen, you know, when do you think you're going to be able to get Elizabeth another job after COVID? She's not, she's afraid of, she's afraid of needles and won't get vaccinated. Um, and we're all vaccinated, but she's, you know, so she's not going to be protected. Her job made her, you know, 35 or $40 a week, not very much money, you know, didn't, yeah. didn't support her candy bar bill at the, <laughs> the local market. And I said, I, when they start hiring, they're going to want people that can do multiple tasks in a workplace rather than just somebody that does one, one type of skill. Um, I, we came up with the idea for the cookie making where Elizabeth would be part of the whole process. She was part of product development. And so recipe tasting, we would take our favorite, what would be my favorite traditional cookies and my daughter, other daughter, Christina's favorite cookies. And we would just start jacking them up a little bit. And uh, so we made like a volcano cookie that is a, a chocolate cookie with chocolate chips and chili and cayenne pepper. But we Ooh. experimented with Chipotle and we experimented with all sorts of things. And I have walking partners uh, where I live in my community. And so they were my taste testing crew. And I would every morning I was coming out with a new bag of cookies for them to taste <laughs> feedback. They gave us feedback. And so Elizabeth and I, we would listen and then she would help me cook again. And then we took our idea to DVR and um, they said, this sounds great. Let's get on that. Well, that was in March. <laughs> and, you know, working with any agency just seems to take forever. And we were hoping to have our cookies out by the time the farmer's market started up in April. So we actually didn't get out there until June. Um, so it took some time, but DVR and DDA supported the startup of the business. And when you say supported it, what did they do? They bought all of our, our startup equipment. They bought the ingredients for our first bake and they paid for our first, we had a test week. So what they did, they hired us a gentleman that did a feasibility study. So he took all the data from us working in the kitchen for a full week. Um, to see how much we could produce and whether this was going to be a viable business or not. And then he takes that data back to DVR and DDA to say, thumbs up, thumbs down. Well, after the week of our feasibility study, we set up a little, a small cookie stand in my driveway. And I told all the neighbors, you know, we're selling cookies this day. And I posted it on Facebook and they came by. I think we sold almost $700 worth of cookies. Wow. In one day in my driveway. So that was kind of proof to everybody that it was work. And they were, they were observers. Observers observed us in the kitchen. Uh, the job coach was there taking notes to 
gauge Elizabeth's ability to be engaged, involved in every element of the business. And then they watched her sell cookies and they could see where, you know, she needed help with change, but she was very great at talking to customers and we need help getting the cookie strips together so she can describe them properly. And he was a, he was a great help. And his assessment came through. I, I think I, I wrote about this because it was the first assessment that we've had where somebody actually saw Elizabeth for who Elizabeth is and what Elizabeth wants. And I'm thinking, we've been going through these assessments since the day she was born. And this is the first time Elizabeth heard the results and was smiling and was actively engaged when they were reading the assessment results. I mean, and I don't know if that's just because she's 34 and she understands a little bit more now, or if it was because they were talking about, it wasn't a long list of everything she cannot do. The job coach wrote, these are the things I see Elizabeth doing. And these are the things that I might be able to help her do better. Fabulous. So it wasn't that she couldn't do them, but she might be able to use some coaching for these skills. Not, it wasn't a, yes, she can and no, she can't. Yes, she can. And I think we can get her to hear on this other skill. That was such a relief. It was a relief (laughs) that somebody saw her, that somebody saw her the way we see her as her family, because we have no doubt about what she can do. But we also have no doubt about the things she needs support in. So when we work in the kitchen, she works with me weighing weighing cookies. She helps to put the cookies in the oven. She decorates all the cookies. I've got one. I'll show you. Oh, so cute. it's It's a peanut butter oatmeal cookie with peanut butter chips and Reese's Pieces. And she loves Reese's Pieces, so she's got to have it. And then my daughter, Christina, and her partner, Robin, developed all the st- the labels. They so did a they, great job, Kim. They did an amazing job. And then on the back, it has all the you know, information. Everybody knows what the ingredients are. And so we, we make this identical cookie. So this is the gluten-free version, but we also make it in a traditional. How many products do you guys have now? About 15. And you sell primarily at the farmer's market? We sell at the farmer's market. Um, right now, that's the biggest bang for our buck. But we, you know, through COVID, so many people were selling things online that we wanted to move in that direction. But shipping is so ridiculously expensive. I mean, someone's going to spend $15 on, on six cookies and spend $8 shipping it to them. I know. And so, uh, you know, I talked to other uh, vendors and they're saying, well, people are used to it. It's nothing to do with you. But I'm like, I just, I just can't bite the bullet yet. So we're going to wait until after the, um, and we're also in a couple of coffee shops now. So we are in some coffee stands and mo- most of them are carrying the gluten-free line because all of the gluten-free products they've been getting are uh, mass produced in Seattle. And they wanted to have a local, a local resource for gluten-free cookies. And so they are very excited by our products. And um, did, Kim, did you ever think about um, maybe doing that same thing as getting a couple of hubs in this area? You know, like you would ship your cookies to a local coffee shop there where more can go, right? right. And people can go and buy them or something like that. Yeah, that's a good that's a good idea. And if, if we weren't selling out everything we're already making, <laughs> right now we're working in a commercial kitchen and um, and through COVID, there's some regulations on how many people we can have in the kitchen. Our goal is to expand those numbers. 
but we until we can safely bring more people into the kitchen, we're kind of stuck at a pace where we are. So today we cook. Today is our bake day and we start at four o'clock in the afternoon and we'll be baking until 11 o'clock tonight. Wow. We'll be, we'll be baking, cooling, and then labeling all the cookies. And then we have a freezer at the commercial kitchen. Everything goes in there. And then we come on Friday and we pull out our stock and we get ready to go to the farmer's market on Saturday and Sunday. And about how many cookies are you able to produce in this time? Like what, what, what about, will be your inventory? Five, we can do about 500 cookies, I think. 500 oh, to, yeah. That's, that's not bad, cookies. right? It's a, a lot of cookies, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it fills our freezer to the top. Wow. They're big, they're big cookies. They are big cookies. <laughs> I, I understand. I, I think that when I saw you selling in your driveway, I asked about shipping. Yes. Because the one thing I know about you, Kim, everything you do, you do right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we work hard to do that. And, and that's why we kind of went slow through this process. So we've just had our last feasibility study. Um, we've requested a couple more items from uh, DDA to purchase for us, one of them being a big stand mixer. We only have one mixer. We could make more cookies because we've got oven space, but we only have one stand mixer, which means we can only do one batch at a time. You know, it might be a double or a triple batch, which is a heck of a lot of cookies, but we could do more. We could right. do two different varieties of cookies at a time. And the way we bake is one day. So today will be our traditional cookie baking and the next week will be back to gluten-free baking. So we kind of alternate. Um, and our we may we work so hard to get these flavors right so that people that are traditional cookie eaters, if I'm out of a of a horse's mouth, traditional, I'll offer them the gluten-free version and say, if you don't like it, bring it back to me. Walk around the market. If you don't like it, I'll take it, I'll take it back, I'll give you your money back. Nobody ever comes back. In <laughs> fact, they come back the next week and say, you know what? We like the gluten-free version better than the regular version. <laughs> Uh, and there was a young man with autism that came to the stand this weekend. Cute as could be. And I, I could see him in the distance. I mean, he was that typical. You could tell he, he was not speaking with his family. He was just jumping and flapping, jumping and flapping. He was just he was full of excitement and anticipation. And when they came to our our booth, um, he saw all this big assortment of cookies. And his dad said to us, he goes, well, you know, I'm sorry, but my son's gluten free. And we said, well, he can choose from all of these because we have them all gluten-free. And he goes, you're kidding. And his son got this big smile. And so he got a, one's called Freaky Friday. So he got a Freaky Friday cookie. <laughs> and he had it in his hand like this. You know, with this big, well, for him, it was a big smile. But I, his dad was so thrilled that his son could have the joy of buying anything he wanted at our cookie stand because it was all safe for him to eat. So. Is Elizabeth the only person with a developmental disability that's in your organization? And might you at some point expand that? Yes, we will. Like I said, as soon as as soon as the commercial kitchen opens up to allowing us to have more in there, we will. And if not, we might have to find another place to bake, which, you know, in a small community is hard to do. So um I think what's happened since we put our banners up and our banner says artisan cookies with the mission, people are starting to ask us about the mission. 
about employing people with developmental disabilities, and we're able to talk about that. We don't have any papers that they can take home with them, but it's on the website. One of her friends uh, from ACT Theater, he, he loves to bake, and he and a friend get together and bake all the time. Well, he has come to the stand three times now to ask Elizabeth if he can cook with her. He wants to cook with her at the kitchen. And I and his mom is just so excited that he's so enthusiastic about wanting to do this job. When DSHS were, were partnering with us, they said, I can think of five people right now that would love to come to work for you. So what I'm doing is what I feel like some of these agencies should be doing. The, the, the job coaching agencies that we have now, if they, if they had a business run like that, they could be do jo job training for lots of individuals with developmental disabilities because there's so many different aspects of the job. There's packaging. So we package our own cookies. You've got to package and label each one by hand. Um, there's mixing, there's, there's scooping, there's weighing, there's selling, merchandising it, delivering it to coffee stands. They love it. The, my customers love it when Elizabeth delivers the cookies. That's the best part. Yeah, I'm sure they do. I Really. Is there a way, like, you know, in California, you can have a business and then get approval or whatever it is by the regional center to become a funded program. Mm -hmm. Do they have that type of thing there? They do, but I will say that most, the funding model in Skagit County, where I am, is on individual employment. It's nothing that's on group employment. So that's the downfall of the county, I think, at this point. So if you look at, I think like 89% of their money goes for individual job development. Well, if 89% of the money goes for individual job development and that only goes to a job one day a week for two or three hours, yeah. I don't really consider that very successful. Here we are, we've developed a job that we think we can bring more people into once we are allowed to, that gives them an opportunity to at least work three to four days a week if they want. Yes. If they're yeah. able, if, they ha if they're interested. Once, yeah. once some of these, you know, some of them, the, the hard reality is, for Elizabeth doesn't like to be bored, but after about four hours on her feet, she's like, my back is killing me, mother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the old one here. You don't tell me that you're back. <laughs> Do you think that they might ever look into, I mean, that, that's probably a harder sell, but if they're the ones doing feasibility studies of your business, if they did feasibility studies of what's currently in place, they would realize they're going to get more bang for their buck in something right. like you're doing. Well, and that, that was the thing I tried to say. If, if I had two people with developmental disabilities working up there, I wouldn't need to have two separate job coaches. I could have one job coach running a station doing part, part of the baking business. To me, that's a savings right then and there. And sometimes you can talk to a brick wall for a long time and not get, get anywhere. I've asked them to go. So I've even made presentations to the board of directors for this, uh, this one agency. I said, go to Inspiration um, Village in Las Vegas. I said, there is the ideal setup for people working at all different skill levels. They have in-house packaging for gift bags that goes on there. They have, uh, they have other people, they have a contract, I think, with the Air Force Base in Las Vegas. 
And so they have people working on base in the cafeteria, doing cafeteria work under the resource of a job coach or two. Um, they have contracts with hotels. So that's, that's to me is what you do is you build, you build a network of a variety of jobs at a variety of skill levels so that you can serve the population more effectively. But the idea of, of so Elizabeth's skills are much different than her friend's skills. That you're going to spend all this time looking for one job for one person for, you know, not even close to a living wage. Right. It doesn't seem to make any sense. One step at a time, right? Oh my God, I'm going to die before it's all. (laughs) No, you're not. So as we sat around here in COVID, all of us kind of doing nothing, I thought to myself, all right, I accomplished inclusion for Elizabeth. The one thing that I haven't accomplished for her is is sustainable employment. So if I'm going to make anything a goal for this next little little bit of that I have left here on earth, uh, that has to be what I, what I go to sleep with is that I finally found sustainable or created sustainable employment for her because we, it cannot be found locally. And I will tell you that other producers have said, we love what you're doing. You know, we have a small farm. And I said, that's so funny because I grew up working on farms around here. But when I asked to take Elizabeth to one of the farm places to work, they said, well, we don't do ag work. As though working in agriculture was a dirty word. And I said, geez, the potato business is a $300 million a year business in this county. And you don't want to do business with them? You know, come on. Right, right. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But but let's work at the little coffee stand that makes maybe $60,000 a year. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yes. That doesn't make sense either. So. <laughs> and that's sort of one of the things that really makes you unique, Kim, in my opinion. And, you know, I have met a lot of people in this field. You have a vision and you bring it to life. You are not a person who gets a vision and tries to think, well, somebody over there should be doing it. Yeah. You know that if you have the vision, you've got to do it every step of the way, period. I don't know if that's a gift or a curse. <laughs> but you've, you've done it. I mean, you've, you spin straw into gold every day in trying to support Elizabeth and other similarly situated human beings and to give them a voice to let all everyone be a contributing member of society. That's all it's really about. Like what else is there? You've been listening to IEPs and more with Kathy Greco. If you have questions, guest suggestions or comments, you can reach out to Kathy at Kathy at GrecoAdvocacy.com. No part of this podcast can be reused or rebroadcast without written consent. Copyright 2021 IEPs and more. Thanks for listening.